Let me tell you about a movie. I enjoy watching movies from time to time. Inception. Has anyone seen it? Yeah? Does anyone understand it? <laughs> it's, it's one of those movies that's incredibly difficult to get your head around. It's about corporate espionage. It's about this team here who implant false information into people's minds in order to extract information or to control behavior. It all takes place not in real time, but in dream time. Yeah, so whilst you're asleep, you can have your thinking uh, re-engineered to serve your enemy's benefit. It's an intriguing film, but it's one of those films that when you get to the end of it, you have to re-watch. Not necessarily the same night. <laughs> it's at least two hours long. But it's a film you need to re-watch and perhaps even re-watch to really get your head around what's happening. There's some very complex um, storylines running through it. It's designed to make you want to watch it again and take your friends back to the cinema to watch it. John's Gospel is just like that. It's not, a, it's not about implanting thoughts in your subconscious. But the point being, it's written in such a way and with a literary style that's designed to make you that when you got to the end of the, end of the book, that you need to restart it and reread it and reread it and reread it. It's designed in such a way that it's meant to capture your interest so that you keep going back to it. You can, we'll never get our heads around John, the gospel, in just one reading. It does really need to be read again and again and again. John uses in order to make us do that, a bit like the movie, he kind of drops in these nuggets along the way, these teasers, that when you first read them, they can seem completely inconsequential to anything, just random observations. And yet, as you read through the book, you begin to realize what John is actually doing is throwing out these pearls and connecting dots. Let me give you one then, John 3. This just seems incidental. I mean, would you agree? There was a man of the Pharisees, and his name was Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. That's the highest ruling authority of 70 members who were the elite members of that society. And he came to Jesus at night. What are you thinking when you read that? I mean, you can answer. I'll throw this one out. What are you thinking when you read that? He came to Jesus at night? Yeah, he didn't want to be seen. You know, it was camouflage. He didn't want to be seen because he's a member of the elite group of religious leaders. And there was a, you know, there was a, a thing about that no one gave Jesus any credibility. So Nicodemus, for him to come at night, suggests, doesn't it, that he's keeping a low profile. You know, he wants to hide. And yet, and yet, when you read through John, you begin to realize, actually, there's more going on here than first, first apparent. Let me give you John 9. I want you to see how the author is using the same terminology. As long as it was day, this is Jesus speaking, but John's recording his word. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me Night is coming when no one can work. Now what is John using night for? It's no longer merely a marker of time, a time marker, is it? Can you see? Now night is serving as the end of time. It's a metaphor, a picture. 
It's pointing to something beyond itself. Night now is the end of this age. Night is when God will finally close shop. When the final opportunity for the final person to hear, to believe, and to receive eternal life will come. It's a time, says Jesus, when there'll be no more gospel labor. So it's a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge to you and me. With the investment we put in the building to come here, it's because of the commission. It's because the time is coming when it will be no longer possible to publicize, to give out Christmas leaflets, to invite people to a church because it'll be the end of time. Night, used by John there, recording Jesus. Can you see, all of a sudden now, you begin to see John can use the term night to get a point across. So if you now come back to Nicodemus, and there's other, several other places, I'm going to give you one more, it's not on the screen. Judas betrays Jesus. And then John happens to note, what time was he when he did that? Does anybody know? It's not, this, it won't be on a text that we're kid. This is, this is additional material. You get extra pay for just keeping up with this part of the sermon. What time, what time of day was it when he did that? And it was night. What do you think he's telling you there? For Nicodemus, not him, for, for Judas to do what he did, he had to be in darkness. Can you see his point? So let me bring you back to John 3, and hopefully you begin to see now John is not just telling us the time of day here. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night. Have a think about it. So get out of your head. This isn't by chance. Who inspired the writing of the Bible? God. Do you think he ever inspired a word by chance? Not on your Nelly. Okay? Every word inspired. So why do you think this is in there? He came to Jesus at night. Have a think about it. Just lay a cog's turn for a moment. What is John telling us about Nicodemus? He came to Jesus at night. Verse 3 is the answer. Listen to verse 3. I don't know what you were going to say, Jerry. Are you going to contribute? Verse 3. This is what verse 3 says. Okay, no, this is the answer. Think about it. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Have a think. Can you see what's going on? Nicodemus is coming to Jesus and it's night. Jesus tells him, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Can you do the mathematics? Can you see what's going on here? What is night being used for in John 3? Nicodemus is in, he's in darkness. That's what John is telling you here. He's not just coming because he's hiding. He may well be hiding, but what's really going on, the reason John notes it, he wants us to know that this ruling member of the highest religious Jewish authority who knew the Bible, they knew the whole of the Old Testament, every 39 book, books off by heart and a bunch of oral tradition. Okay, Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Israel, the teacher of Israel, Okay, meaning that the highest standard of of religious education came from Nicodemus and Jesus wants it to be known and he's telling us this through John that the most religiously, religiously educated man in all of Israel was actually in when it comes to real true spirituality in 
darkness. That's a shocking truth, isn't it? That we can know everything there is about God and remain in darkness. And look, Nicodemus gives himself away. Verse 3, uh, verse 2 of chapter 3. Look, he gives himself away. This is how we know he's in spiritual darkness. Next slide, please, Ricky. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, you tell me. How do we know he's in darkness? Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who comes from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. Can you see? He betrays his ignorance. To anyone, any discerning reader, you will look at him, he's, he's in absolute ignorance. This fellow who ought to know is in absolute darkness. Can you see? Can you see why he's in absolute darkness? How does he who does he think Jesus is? Just a teacher. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher from God. That is an insult. And we need the prime minister, Mr. Scott Morrison, walked into the building now and we said something like, Hey, I know you uh, I know you drive a nice car. <laughs> it's kind of missing the point, isn't it? You know? Yeah, and, and this is the point here. Teacher, we know we know you're a teacher from God. No, he's not a teach merely a teacher from God. He is that. Here, John tells us. John, who has light, tells us exactly who Jesus is and the very thing that Nicodemus could not see. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples. Nicodemus knows that. But here's where Nicodemus fell short. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is a teacher from God. That's not the point, is it? No. The miraculous signs don't just tell us, oh, here's another, the latest miracle worker. The miraculous signs tell us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the fulfillment of all their hopes. He is the Messiah who's way beyond any Jew could even envisage. He's not the Messiah alone. He is actually the Messiah has been revealed to be the Son of God. That's who he is. And so for Nicodemus to say, as the elite ruling council member, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher from God because of the miracles, betrays the absolute and utmost ignorance and darkness towards Jesus, a darkness that would ultimately damn Nicodemus. That's the point here. We're going to develop that a little later. So John's writing this gospel. His express purpose, he tells us at the end. That's why you have to go back and reread it. Okay, one of the reasons is to reveal Jesus' identity and it's full of wealth. And these little nuggets of information that are made to get you to reread and think, wow, that's what he was doing with that word. That's what's that about. And so he uses eight miracles of Jesus, of all the ones he did, uh, uh, the, the, that, uh, of all the ones that Jesus did, he takes these eight and uses them to reveal something of Jesus' character. There's a list of them here. Uh, on the next slide, I think, please. Uh, on the next slide, thank you. There they are. He turned water into wine. He healed an official son. He healed a royal... 
He healed a paralyzed man, fed the 5,000, walked on water, restored sight to the blind, raised Lazarus, gave the disciples an enormous catch of fish. The point is simply this, that Jesus, through his miracles, was revealing who he is, and John selects key ones. We don't have time to do John. We're going to be starting Ephesians after Christmas. But if we did John, you'd begin to put the picture together and see how these signs point to who he is. John's writing, possibly later in life. There's some dis- we saw it on the video on Friday, between 75 AD and 90. So towards the end of his life, he's writing this account of Jesus' life. How could he possibly remember 30 years from the events? How could he possibly remember 30, 40 years from the events? Precisely what Jesus did. Because Jesus promised him that he'd give him the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit would remind him of everything that he taught. So he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. He's on the island of, uh, well, he was eventually on the island of Patmos, but where did John work? Does anybody know? Before the next slide comes up, question time, does anybody know where John worked? Did he most of his ministry? He wasn't actually, he was in Ephesus. John was the leader of the church in Ephesus. Spent the majority of his time pastoring, leading that church before he was uh, sidelined to Patmos and to suffer off the coast of Ephesus there, Turkey, to suffer for Jesus' name. Okay, a bit of background there. Let's, let's begin. I've just got the one heading. It's, called, it's, it's beginnings. Our heading is beginnings because we're just beginning to look at the early life of Jesus leading towards Christmas. Uh, we may do a bit more of John next week and then uh, on to the nativity beyond that as we head towards our finale, Christmas Day. But for today, then, faith in God's Son leads to eternal life. Faith in God's Son leads to eternal life. So the verse is the grand breath for us. Thanks, Graham. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that was made. Football. Look, when I say football, I mean football. Ball and foot. <laughs> okay? Yeah. yeah, football. Anybody into football here? Anybody, does anybody know anything about British football here? Ben. Okay, okay. Ben, oh, one of our newer people there too. I forgot to say earlier, Ben. It's great to have your family here at the church. Uh, so Ben, Ben knows a bit about football. Okay, so maybe Ben can help me out. So, okay, I need some help here. If I were to mention British football, if I were to mention 66, if I say the number 66, what are you instantly thinking? Bingo. Not bingo. <laughs> do, do you know, Ben? I'm going to give you a clue. 1966. Somebody help me out here. If you're British, come on, mate. Why didn't you know the first time I said it? Okay. Rob, tell me, what is 1966? Next picture, please, Ricky. Okay. It's when England, it's when England won the World Cup, okay? <laughs> Look, it's etched on every Brit's memory. You go to England, okay, and you say 66, it only means one thing. It's the World Cup, okay? And there's this aspiration to repeat it. It's just not going to happen. Well, hey, hey, I'm not, I don't want to be a prophet of doom. It hasn't happened thus far. It's obviously going to happen at some point. 
in the future is a big hope. Okay, so the point is, look, if you walk down, okay, to Trafalgar Square and shout 66, they'll all be triumphing about the big win, okay? Everybody knows what 66 or 1966 points to. Now you're a Jew. I don't think we've got our Jewish contingency this morning, but you're a Jew, okay? Now you're living in Israel, so you're you're cultured in your, in, your, uh, in your Jewishness, okay? You hear these words as you read a new document that's circulating, okay, in your community. You're a Jew, bona fide one, and you hear these words, where does your mind instantly go? In the beginning. Yeah. You read that. In the beginning. Okay? Remember, John's not a fool. He's not writing his gospel because, like, you know, after he's had a few to drink. Okay? Okay? He starts it, okay, to a Jewish audience. And he starts with these words, okay? In the beginning. Obviously, they were in English, in Greek, in Alchaic. Okay? That's how he looks in, in Greek. No, sorry, that's how I said it, rather. But so they're reading it in Greek because Greek was the common language of the time, okay, Koine Greek, right? They're reading these words in the beginning. The Jewish people of the time, okay, the Jewish people of the time read their Bible, their Hebrew Old Testament in one language, someone tell me? In Greek. They read it in Greek, okay? The words would be NRK, and beginning, okay? That's how they would have read it. That's how they read their Bibles. They read their Bibles in Greek. John wrote his John's Gospel in one language, Greek, so in Greek, okay, when they're familiar with it, they're reading now, in the beginning, what do you think the mind's thinking? Genesis 1, more than that, what else is their mind thinking? Okay, because, because John begins, in the beginning was the word, a title for Jesus. Every Jew knows that the beginning of the Torah, okay, begins... In the beginning, God. What's his name? What do they know him by? Yahweh, the Lord. Okay, now John, okay, talk about, you know, can you imagine walking down the streets of Palestine, uh, the the Arab section, and wearing an A-board saying, I hate Muslims? Who would do that? be out of your mind okay can you see what john is doing here to put a statement like that at the very beginning of his book to a jewish audience and to replace the name of god in the sentence with jesus a mere man this is explosive stuff in the beginning was the word you see for john john 20 he already said it these are written that you may believe that jesus christ is the son of god i know when we think of son we 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 differentiate sons don't we i mean look i have a son you know none of you are thinking that's montez are you you know you know there's distinction we you know when he grows up it's possible he may do what i do well, he probably do something entirely different. See, our relationship to our sons is, is, is somewhat 
distant two house sons would perceive in that day. You see, if, you're, if you were a baker, George, okay, and you had a son, what would your son do for a living? He would be a baker. You see, a son followed in his footsteps. He was the representation of his father. He inherited his father's role. He is effectively everything that the father is. Can you see? And so, so when the Bible refers to Jesus as the son of God, we have to read it through Jewish eyes and understand that doesn't mean anything less than God. The title, the son of God, is equivalent to God. That's the point. And so John said, look, this is, this is the message, and he wants to convey this message. He wants to convey it to his Jewish audience. So he begins with his punchline. He begins and hits you between the eyes. He wants it to be known, the Genesis 1-3, that the God who said, let there be light, is the person that we're dealing with in Jesus. You know, sometimes you're having a conversation, you might think, I'm like this, please forgive me. You know, you know um, and you, know, you ask him a question, and like 20 minutes later, you're like, is he going to tell me? You know, is he going to get to the punchline? You know, <laughs> I get short when people do that to me. I'm like, okay, but what's the point? Uh, right? But John gives you his point in his opening sentence. Okay? We're dealing with, in Jesus, not a man. We're dealing with the God who said, let there be light. Paul tells us in Colossians, doesn't he? All things were made by who? By him. It's not on the screen, Ricky. By him. For him and by him. So John is putting Jesus, God rather, and Jesus, not like that, but like that. He's connecting the dots. He's equating the two he is leaving no room for differential between that character in their history and this character who's walked their streets some time earlier. He's conveying a truth that is essential to what Christianity is. You see, how do we distinguish what Christianity from every other Christian cult? And I'm going to name them so you know what they are. Mormonism is a Christian cult, if you didn't know it. Okay. Jehovah's Witnesses are a Christian cult, if you didn't know them. There's several other ones. Some of these are a bit close to the bone, so I won't mention them here in public. Okay? But there's far more cults out there than we accept. Okay? How do you recognize a Christian cult? There's one simple litmus test. I said this one of my first visits in November 2017. I hope you can remember that, Pam. That was the day when you, when you did a lot of dance for me. You said how enthusiastic you were about the future. You've forgotten that, but the whole of my UK friends know because I told them all what you did. <laughs> so, what's a litmus test for what is a cult and what is Christianity? It's the one that every single cult trips upon, fails. It's what marks out a cult. It is the it's Jesus. It is the deity of Jesus. How do you spot a cult? They always make an assault on the deity of Jesus. Always. You see, any transformation, any change on who Jesus is, 
you now had sub-Christian religion, a religion that cannot save. You see, this is a truth that Jesus is God's son, one with him, is an absolute truth to Christianity. It's an absolute non-negotiable. The minute we negotiate, we have become sub-Christian. The minute we, we, we move on that, we are less than Christian. It's a non-negotiable absolute of Christianity. It's the litmus test of authentic Christianity. Well, let me tell you a bit about absolute truths. Uh, look, I'm going to start with some of these. They're on the screen now. Uh, these are, and the next one, please, Ricky. Uh, some, if you don't succeed. If at first you don't succeed, you're running about average, because most people don't. Okay? If at first you don't succeed, failure may be your style. Just, just admit it, okay? You're just a failure. If at first you don't succeed, try reading the instructions, guys. Get the book out. If at first you don't succeed, destroy all evidence that you've ever tried. Okay, save face. If at first you don't succeed, try two more times so that your result is statistically significant. You really are a failure. It's got more. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again, and then give up. Okay? If at first, okay, there's no use in being a fool about it. If at first you don't succeed, you'll get a lot of unsolicited advice. Everybody can tell you what you should have done. Okay? If at first you don't succeed, call it version 1.0. Okay, that's my style. You know, we're at 1.0, we're now moving to 1.2, and then 1.3, until we find it works. That's my engineering background. You keep developing the instrument until it engages the road the way you want it to, under God's sovereignty, under God's grace. But here's, here's my favourite, and, and here's the one pertinent to our message. If at first you don't succeed... Skydiving is not for you. Okay? You see, in skydiving, success is an absolute essential. If your parachute doesn't open when you parachute, okay, you will hurtle to the ground at the speed of gravity. Okay? Which is pretty fast. You'll make contact with matter down below at such an immense rate that your body will be virtually obliterated. You see, when it comes to skydiving, there's absolute truth. When you jump out of that airplane, okay, when you jump out of that airplane, if you're not wearing a parachute, it's curtains, man. It's curtains. It's, a, it's an absolute non-negotiable. It's not flexing. You can't jump out of an airplane at 14,000 feet without a parachute and think, well, maybe I could just use the shirt off the back of my back. Because it just doesn't work like that. Maybe I can just flap a bit. You know, if I really flap hard enough, I could just slum. I'll tell you what, I could grab a cloud. You know, you know hug a cloud? You bring me down gently? You see? Maybe catch a lift of a, of a, of a bird? You know, who knows? You see, it's, it's absurd, isn't it? There's, there's no negotiation. It's an absolute that if you jump out of a plane without a parachute at 14,000 feet, it's critical. You're doomed. There is no movement. 
John wants you to know, friends, the reason he stamps it at the very beginning of his book, because just like skydiving, Jesus Christ as Son of God is an absolute truth of Christianity, critically so. To believe that we can have a relationship with God without Jesus as our master and God is critical. It's equivalent to jumping out of a plane without a parachute. No amount of flapping, no amount of negotiation, no amount of good works, no amount of sacrifice, nothing will make the slightest difference to the one objective truth that to fail to recognize and to give an allegiance to Jesus as God's son, as his equal, is absolutely critical. John says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And here's a critical element. And by believing, and only by believing, and only by believing, Jesus is the Son of God. That truth, it has to be that truth. It's not enough to believe he existed. It's not enough to believe that he was a kind person. It's not enough to believe that he's a teacher. It's not enough to believe that he died again. We heard about Josephus on Friday, a Roman historian, believed in Jesus. He wrote about him. That belief is insignificant. It cannot do anything for Josephus or you and me. The only belief in Jesus that has any significance is the belief that he is the Son of God. He is equal. That's Christianity. And here's the reality. Look, what country are we in? I often forget. We're Australia. Okay? Okay? Doesn't matter if you're in Australia. Australia. Yeah, does that work? There you go. You see, it's all these advertisements we used to watch back in the UK about, about castle main forex. No, is that it? Yeah? An, an Australian wouldn't give a castle main forex or any other lager or beer or something like that. Okay, long time ago. Look, I've lost my train of thought completely, haven't I? Look, whether, whether you live in Australia, Afghanistan, Beirut, Cairo in Egypt, London, UK, New York City, USA, Delhi, India, okay, What's the capital of Brazil? Brasilia or something like that. Okay. Wherever you live, whatever your nationality, whatever your background, whatever your culture, whatever your gender, your social grouping, whatever religious background into which you've been born, there is one absolute truth that governs your eternal destiny. And the truth is, whether or not you believe wholeheartedly and in a life-transforming way that Jesus is the Son of God. No matter who you are, no matter where you're born, that's the critical truth that governs 
our eternal destiny. Jesus said, John writing on his behalf, says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let me quote Jesus. In case, look, these are John's words, but I want you to hear from Jesus' lips what he says of himself. If it's not enough what John comments about him, listen to his own words if there's any doubt about the narrow path that leads to eternal life. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And just in case we, we don't quite get what he's saying to us, he concludes, no one, no one, in no part of the world, and in no culture, comes to the Father, except through How do I get to heaven? What is the essential truth that will get me into God's heaven? It is my trust and confidence and faith in Jesus as God's son. Hey, I want to close. I'll try to come to a close in a couple of minutes now. What do we think about Jesus? Really? And I guess I'm not asking how long have we been a member of Living Word Church or Rivergate Christian Community. We're asking is, what do I really think of Jesus? Who is he? A legend, a religious figure, a leader of Christianity, a teacher. Who is he? It's worth asking. In trying to gauge where I stand in my faith, the question I need to ask myself, who do I believe Jesus is? Who do I believe he is? What rank do I believe he holds? What position does he hold? Because the point is, our point this morning, is faith in God's Son that leads to eternal life. Do I really believe? And if I do, does that, is that reflected in how I conduct myself? Let me speak to those of us who have already made a profession of faith. This is what Jesus says to us. Those of us who do believe that Jesus is God's Son, who have already come to faith. It's the, it's the last verse, please, Ricky, John 8. Jesus says these words, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Can you see the point? So what do we do beyond faith, beyond belief and confidence? You know, what comes beyond that? If you hold to my teaching, it's why we're a Bible teaching church. It's why we are emphasizing this particular, uh, this particular distinctive of our church, that we're a Bible teaching church, because beyond faith in Jesus, it's, it's, my, it's my conditioning and grappling and holding on to and working through and trusting Jesus' teaching, that's what a Bible teaching church does, imparts Jesus' teaching. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. I want to encourage you, hey, keep going. Keep believing. 
kept engaging with the word, listen to the messages, hear something really boring, listen to them again. Just play it again. If you can't stand the sight of me, just play audio. Okay? If you can't let my voice, put it through a mixer. You can change the tone. You can make it sound Aussie. Oh, you know, sort of. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, whatever you have to do, engage with the word. Read it. Okay? Pray through it. Hold on to it. Let's continue in Jesus' word. Be here. There's nothing quite like live Bible teaching. I was saying to someone recently, you can't beat live theatre. I mean, I'm I'm a kid of the movies, love movies. Movies are great, but you can't beat live theatre. Listening to a sermon online is great. I listen to lots. Um, There's that guy, you know, um, Montaz Ali. (laughs) <laughs> no, I don't listen to myself. <laughs> that would be quite sad, except for special reasons sometimes. I listen to people like, see, now you know some good people. I listen to Tim Keller a lot. I listen to R.C. Sproul. I love him. I adore, adore Sproul. I listen to Don Carson, fabulous preacher, Alistair Beck, Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, who else do I love? Uh, Stephen Lawson. Okay. I listen to preachers of the Proclamation Trust, like Dick Lucas, John Piper from the USA. These are some of the people I listen to. You want to know some people that I listen to that I can verify are kosher, you're safe? There's some real dodgy people out there, George. Some real dodgy people. Okay. There's some names for you. I'll give you a list if you want them of people that, 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 that I've vetted and can verify Teach the Bible without bias. Okay, you know, that's Jesus focus. folks. Listen to messages. Put them on in your car. Play them when you're cooking. Get a radio shower. If you're anything like me and spend half an hour in the, ra- in, the, in the radio, half an hour in the shower, that's a sermon. Well, not if Montez is preaching. For most people, that's a sermon. Okay? Get the word. Let it drain through us. Hear it. Believe it. And let's be committed to it. Because it's faith in God's Son that leads to eternal life. May no one here, no one, me included, may no one here fall short of that mark. Amen.